Good morning, everybody. It is good to see you today. Y'all made it through the bike marathon, through the rain, through the craziness. I feel like half the people in the room are sick right now. It's all right. You're here. It's good to see you. Don't mind my hair today. That humidity got my hair looking crazy. Any ladies know what I mean right now? <laughs> so if I do a couple of flicks while I'm uh, preaching. It's good to see y'all. Y'all came for a good service today. I've, I've been excited uh, to share on this topic for some time. Um, by the way, if you haven't met me, my name is Justin, pastor here. Uh, I'd love to meet you after service. Please come say hi. I'm usually somewhere in the hallway or in the foyer uh, as, as everybody is leaving, but I'd love to meet you. Uh, and you came for a good week. Today, the topic, as I said last week, we were starting this kind of mini-series in the series on, on family, and today uh, we're talking about godly parenting, godly parenting. To me, this is probably the sermon that I have been looking forward to. Uh, since the very beginning, uh, may be, I think, the most important uh, sermon in this series uh, that I preach. And the reason I say that is because our kids, the kids of the church, have, been, have become a casualty of the consumerism war that has happened in Western culture. And it's just been unfortunate to see, watch happen uh, uh, over my lifetime, but... It's been happening for a long time now, and what has been happening in culture as we see, especially in Western culture, uh, which is the culture that we are in, that we are living in, uh, the birth rate just continues to decline, uh, and this is because the more that we have become infatuated with stuff, the less likely we are to enjoy the reality of kids, and this is something that is constantly put in front of our face uh, because we have to be honest with ourselves when it comes to kids, right? When, when we're talking about kids, uh, kids take away everything that culture tells us to crave, everything. Our independence, our money, our time, right? These are things that the world will say, this is what you want, this is what you strive for, this is what, the, this is what living is for, but yet, having kids will destroy your life. <laughs> Y'all laughing because it's true. You hear it everywhere. Whether it's on a sitcom, on the news, from your friends, from if, if you don't have kids, from your friends with kids, you just look at their life like, I don't want my Instagram to look like that. <laughs> it, it goes from, from beaches to pampers, you know, like this is what Insta stories look like from one to the other. Which is ironic that we stay away from kids for these reasons because partly that's what makes them a blessing from God. Because what has happened is our careers and our freedom is more culturally important than our kids and our homes. And our home has lost the priority and we've shoved them off to paid help and to the government. And we've said, you raise them because I don't want to. I would rather my money, my time, my independence than to deal with these issues. And what we've done as a culture is we've put our dreams above our kids. 
And that's created a sad reality in the state of the church, a sad reality in the state of the Christian home in America. I'm going to read some sobering statistics for all of you. By the year 2050, if everything stayed the same, 35 million youth raised in Christian homes will disaffiliate with Christianity. 35 million over the next 30 years that are raised in Christian homes will disaffiliate with their Christian faith. This is if everything stays the same, which all of the statistics are pointing to things are not staying the same. They have been getting worse, and the best estimates right now are upwards of 50 million youth will disaffiliate themselves with Christianity as they grow up. The overall Christian percentage in America, including Catholics, will go from 73% to 59% by the year 2050. The unaffiliated number of people will more than double from 50 million to 110 million over the next 30 years if things stay the same. These are sobering statistics, but I can tell you growing up in the church, the, this is reality. Uh, as I grew up in the church, I grew up with a, a lot of my friends uh, that their parents were very involved in ministry. Their parents loved God, but a lot of those friends that I grew up with are not serving God right now. And I see firsthand the reality of these statistics that have taken place over the last 30 years of my lifetime. A lot of times we just take for granted that our kids are just going to follow the way that we want them to go. But as I've seen over and over again, that just does not happen. So what can we do? What I hope to give today is a compelling case from Proverbs on how we can stop this problem from happening in our church. How do we stop this problem from happening in our church? And when we look at the Old Testament and New Testament, there's this word that comes up as I was reading through the Proverbs for this topic today that really succinctly encapsulates everything that we want to talk about. Uh, and it's something that we see throughout the entire Old Testament and something uh, that becomes the model of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we see it a lot with uh, physical children. In the New Testament, we see it in a, a lot with spiritual children. But the reality of both of them is the same. And the solution that Scripture speaks to is this, discipleship. And that's what we're going to be talking about. Because the first thing that we must commit to doing with our children is discipling them. If we want our children to have a chance to stay in the faith, if we want our children to grow up knowing Jesus, then we must have this one word rooted deeply in our minds and in our hearts every time we see them, every time if we're praying for our future ones, when we pray for them, when we think about them, it must be this one word. Discipleship. How do I disciple my kids? This one thing that I've never forgot that I've heard said is that God has no grandchildren. That means that God only has sons and daughters. When our kids grow up, they will not be grandfathered in to the kingdom. They will become, on their own, full right citizens of heaven. Sons and daughters. They will not be... You know, son of Joseph, son of Louis, son of blah, 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 whatever it is. 
It will be, this is Justin, my son. This is Stephanie, my daughter. That's who we will be. In Proverbs 22.6, we begin this journey into what discipling our children looks like. It says this, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. See, what discipleship takes is, if you've ever discipled somebody, you may not have discipled a kid, but if you've ever discipled somebody, if you've ever been discipled, you know this one reality about discipleship is this. It, it takes a lot of time, and it takes a lot of intentionality. It takes a lot of time, and it takes a lot of intentionality. It will not just happen on its own. Your kids will not be discipled by accident. This is not something... That if you lead a good personal prayer life with God, if you lead a good personal devotional life with God, if you go to church every week, just because you have a good personal relationship with God does not mean that that will translate into your kids being discipled into also having a great personal relationship with God. It takes training. It takes intentionality. It takes time. To do this. And the home must come into refocus if we are ever going to do this well. The home must come into a priority again into our lives if we are ever going to see this happen at the capacity that scripture teaches us to make it happen. We must literally begin to plan for it. I, I actually think about how a lot of times we talk about our careers and we have our career goals and we, and we plan through our career where this is where I want to be in five years, in one year. This is where I want to be in ten years. And a lot of times you're told, all right, map it out. How are you going to get there? What are your steps to get there? What do you have to learn in order to get there? What are the steps that you have to climb? What is the ladder? What is each rung in the ladder? And Western culture will teach you the, these are all the steps that you need to do. This is all the planning that you need to do. Start now in college. I went to business college and they teach you, you need to start planning this now if you at 50 60 want to have a life of luxury that planning needs to start right now with the classes that you take with the internships that you take all of it needs to start now that same intentionality that same planning that same time investment we need to reprioritize and shift into our home and back into our children and say okay where do I want my child to be when she is 10. Where do I want him to be when he's 15? Where do I want her to be when she's 25? When she's 25, it's too late to start asking where I want her to be when she's 25. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 to 9 says this. Hear, my son, your father's instructions, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head. And pendants for your neck. What I love here about this Proverbs is what we see is it is the responsibility of both parents, both the mother and the father, if both are around, to instruct, teach, and train their kids. It doesn't fall on the shoulders of just one parent. What does it say? Your father's instruction, your mother's teaching. It is the responsibility of the parents in the home to train and to teach their kids. 
See, a lot of times what will happen is that the responsibility will be shrugged off. Now, I've been in church long enough. I've, I've seen this. I've, I've seen parents walk into church and say, why aren't my kids serving God? You aren't doing a good enough job teaching them. And, you know, when I first started hearing this, I, was, I, I used to think as a kid, like, yeah, we're not doing a good job. You know, we're not praying hard enough. We're, having, we're not having enough revival weekends. You know, we haven't been fasting hard enough for this to happen. You know, whatever it is, I take responsibility. And then I realized, as my, my dad shared with me, and he said, Justin, it is not the responsibility of the church to raise people's kids. It is the responsibility of the home to raise the kid. The church is part of the discipleship process, but it is not the solution for the discipleship process of our children. That is not where most of it should be happening. If the church is missing from that, we are missing a huge component in the discipleship process. But it cannot be the full solution for it. Uh, one of my mentors used to be a children's pastor, and whenever a parent would come in and tell this to him, he had a... he. He got it so often that he had an illustration built into his ceiling so that whenever a parent would come in, he could point up and say, let's talk about this. And he had this string that went all the way around the ceiling. Uh, and the string represented every minute of the week, 20, you know, seven days a week, however many minutes that is uh, during the week. And for every, like, centimeter, it was a minute during the week. He was like, you see that white string up there? It's like, yeah, I see the string. You see that red piece right at the end? You know, the string that's all the way around like this? That red piece at the end, that's how much time I have your children every week. You have them for that entire time. And it's my fault that your kids aren't being discipled. Sorry if I'm stepping on a couple toes right now. <laughs> Scripture is clear. It is the responsibility of the parents to train the home. Now, the church comes in and helps when that is not home. If there is not a father in the home, if the, the, the mother is out of the picture, if the parents, if this is a first-generation Christian and they're a teenager and they're coming to know, that's where the church steps in and does the mothering and the fathering and the parenting there. But in the home, the first responsibility should come from the mother and the father. Now, my, I, I don't know if some of you may have been here last year when my dad came uh, and preached. And, you know, it was funny. When I was interviewing after, after he preached, we did a 25-minute interview. I was actually learning a lot during that interview. All of you that really enjoyed that interview, uh, I really enjoyed it too because I was like, huh, I didn't realize that you did that. You know, I didn't know that you did that. Something about my dad that really just blows me away is his intentionality and the time that he spent discipling each and every single one of his children. There are some things that I starkly remember as a child. If you ask yourself, well, how do I do this? What does that look like? Uh, I ask myself that often as I have my two boys and I have my two girls that will be here soon. God, help me. Right, my dad, every night before we would go to sleep, before I would go to sleep, my dad would read a part of a book to me. Now, sometimes these books were fun books, like we read through the Chronicles of Narnia together, and I really enjoyed 
those readings, but sometimes, like, if you know about my dad, you're going you're gonna to laugh about this. If you know about me, you're going to laugh at this. Some, some books he would read, I read through almost every great revivalist in American history, all of their biographies as a kid. I was like eight years old and well-versed in all revivalist history uh, in American history. And so we would read through books like God's Generals and read biographies of Smith Wigglesworth and John Wesley and George Whitfield. Like this was my nighttime reading with me and my dad. <laughs> And, like, what he would do is he would just read a chapter, and then when the chapter was over, we would talk about it. And then he would pray over me. He'd be like, Justin, I, I, I'm, he would pray, God, I pray that the spirit of George Whitfield would be on my son, or the spirit of John Wesley would be on my son. I had to work through a lot of ambition issues in my teenage and my 20s uh, because of that. But what my dad was doing was he was being intentional with his time. Every morning... Before we went to school, we would read through a devotional. He would, whatever life stage we were in, he would get a devotional book for that life stage, and he would read through it. It took five minutes. He would go through it. There would be some questions at the end. He would ask, and then we would talk about it. This is one thing that I learned when I interviewed him last year that I never knew. My dad always drove us to school when I was younger, right? Whatever time that was, 8 in the morning, 7.30. I didn't realize that he intentionally drove us to school so that he can have those 15 minutes in the car with us to have discipleship moments with us. And I remember now thinking back in the car, he would always ask us questions. He would ask us questions about our friends. He would ask us questions about our day, what we were learning. He would talk to us about Jesus. He would pray with us in the car. We would talk about a devotional maybe that we just read or some scripture that we were going through. The point is, he looked at his time, and it would be really easy, as my dad is one of the most busy people that you will ever meet in your life, it would have been easy for him to say, no, I have a lot of things going on, I don't have time to do these things because he's overseeing 400 churches in the city, he's pastoring a church in Sunset Park before it was nice, it was Gunset back in the day, you know, like, he... You know, he had five biological kids, plus we had two strangers at all times living in our home from the church. You know, like, my dad was a busy guy. It would have been easy for him to say, well, I have a lot going on. I want to grow the church. I, I, I want to I grow the, the network that I'm working on. I want to grow these other things. But he always prioritized and knew that this came first. His ministry first was to his home, then it was to the body of Christ. And as I got older, he constantly gave me books. And what this turned out to be, I remember freshman year, this wasn't abnormal to me, but I, was, uh, I would always get early to class uh, in freshman year in, in high school, uh, and I would sit down, I would read a book uh, in freshman year. I remember because like sophomore, junior year, I wasn't really getting early to class anymore. Uh, you know, it was like a freshman thing that I did. Uh, and... I remember I was, I was reading this one book, and it was called uh, Refuting Evolution. And, you know, as my English teacher at the time sees a freshman 14-year-old kid reading this book, and he's like, what in the world are you reading, Justin? <laughs> like, first of all, what kind of crazy things are your, your parents teaching you right now? Uh, and, and, like, tell me about this. And I remember... Uh, in biology class and in English class, debating my teachers uh, because what, whatever arguments that they would have to say, well, God doesn't exist. Back then it was like there was no such thing as theistic evolution. It was just like you either believe in God or you believe in evolution. And so I would go home and I would say, well, 
my teacher said this, and my dad would be like, all right, read this book, or let's watch this documentary together, or let's, here's a debate that talks about this topic. Let's listen to it and talk about it. And I would go back to class, and I would be armed and talk to the professor or the teacher. I remember in college, my freshman year of college, my first day in class, my very first class ever, my history professor uh, says this, if uh, you believe in God and don't believe in evolution, you are an idiot. And it is my job over the next six months to get you to change your opinion. That was literally the first thing that I said. Now, I was looking at my friends at this time and I was seeing them drop like flies. Because imagine walking into a hostile environment like that where you're in your first higher education in your life. Your friends, you know, had 120 people in the room and they're all soaking this up because they've never heard of something like this. Well, the, the thing that I loved about my dad is that when I went home, I knew that my dad had always taught me one thing. He said, Justin, there is always an answer. Whatever anybody says in class, whatever anybody tells you, remember that there's always an answer. Come home. Let's ask those questions together. And so that semester, I read eight books about the historical text and about the canon and why we believed in this and this. And I remember almost every day in class, I would raise my hand, professor, because he, he, he decided we're going to go through the Bible together. And that's, that was how he was going to get us to not believe. There was one mistake that the professor made, though. He never encountered a student who had actually read their Bible before. <laughs> and so every day I would read, Professor, what about this verse? And I, I always remember this one thing the professor said in the beginning of class. He said, the Bible is so big and so vast that anybody can get it to say whatever they want. And that was my favorite line. I wrote it down the, that, uh, in class because I used that on him a couple of times. I was like, it sounds like you are just getting it to say whatever you want. And so one day, my professor invited me back to, uh, you know, they have office hours. So he invited me to office hours. I came and I sat down. You know, I wasn't a jerk. I wasn't mean. I would just ask honest questions. Like, if you're saying this, what about this verse? So he invites me into his office hours. I sit down. And he said to me, he said, Justin, I've never had a student who actually read the Bible before. You are the first student I've ever had that has read it. And I love this question. He said, why do you read it? And I remember opening up. Here was a, an atheistic professor who struggled in a lot of areas in his life, who did not believe in God, but yet went to Catholic Mass every week because he loved the peace that he would feel at Mass. And I remember at that moment I was able to share the gospel with him, he didn't get saved, no crazy story like that, but I, it was planting a seed in that man's life. But the thing that I realized was while my friends were dropping like flies because of the challenge that they received to their understanding of Christianity, the understanding of the Bible, what happened was for me that became a challenge of growth because my dad was intentional with his time and with his resources. And he made sure that he knew we can question all of this at home because we know that the truth will always lead us to Jesus. And if we are objective, if we are not biased, and we look at all the facts, he was 100% positive that it would always lead us back to Jesus. Every week we would have family time together on Sunday and we would actually read through a proverb every Sunday. My mom would read it 
and she would explain it to us, the Proverbs that we were reading. You know, if you've ever read Proverbs uh, on your own, some of them, you're like, what in the world does that mean? Imagine a teenager hearing them, somebody else reading, like, what in the world does that mean? So she would take the time every week, read them through with us, explain it to us, pray with us. The thing is this, that if we are not discipling our kids, guess who is? Somebody is. It may not be you, but somebody is. TV is going to be discipling your kids. Their teachers are going to be discipling them. Their friends are going to be discipling them. The world is going to be discipling them. If you are not being intentional about discipling your sons and daughters, somebody is going to be discipling them, even if it's not you. It should not shock us after 20 years if our kids decide not to follow God when they have been taught since a kid by a secular, atheistic worldview about life, sex, religion, and morality. When they have been taught by these things for Two decades, they've been indoctrinated, and they've never heard a counter-argument at home. They've never heard the true way. They've never heard another way of reasoning. It shouldn't shock us that, man, well, yeah, of course they disagree with you on morality. Of course they disagree with you on Jesus. Of course they disagree with you on religion and sex. Of course. And what I've seen is a lot of times when I was a youth pastor, I'd see a lot of parents get mad at their kids. And I've seen this growing up in the church. When they're teenagers or young adults. Why aren't you making godly decisions? I've raised you better than that. I've taught you better than that. But we never took the time to train them. You know, I think about it this way. It's, it's like you're really excited about making a cake. I got a lot of people's attention with this. I know our church. You get really excited about making a cake. Maybe you, you, get, you got a new cookbook or you found a new recipe on Pinterest and you're ready to go to town. You got all your ingredients in front of you. You got everything that you need. You put it out on the counter. You lay it out. And then when you're done laying it out, you go and you go and watch TV for two hours. And then you come back into the kitchen. You see the ingredients laid out and you get really mad. Ingredients? Why aren't you a cake? Why can't I come and taste the fruit of my labor right now? And we get frustrated at the ingredients because they didn't come together and become the cake. And essentially, we do the same thing with our kids. We, we put the Bible out on the table. We say our prayers in their view. We take them to church and... We drop them off and we, we put all the things in the right place. And then we come back and we check in in 20 years. Why aren't you a Christian? Why, why aren't you following God? We never took the time and the investment to take all those things, put them together and do the hard work of baking. The hard work of discipleship of life-on-life life ministry, of training, of teaching. 
I want to encourage you, if you're a parent, I want you to start tonight. If your kids are small, get a toddler Bible and begin to read it through with them. If they're older, take them out to eat and talk about life with them. It may take a while to get them going. Trust me, I understand. Teenagers are cray. But find out, how do they learn? Are they visual learners, audio learners, readers? What is, what is their method? Put resources in front of them. Show them that you care about their intellect and the ways that they grow spiritually and emotionally. Over time, they will... Teenagers want one thing more than anything, and that is time investment. If they find somebody that will give them time, they will find somebody that loves them. It may take a while to build trust, but you have to start somewhere. When I was in school for finance, all my friends were getting their finance jobs, and they were working 80 to 100 hours a week. One of my friends that graduated before me actually told me that he got a blow-up mat. This is, this is a true story. He got a blow-up mat and put it under his desk. Because he was working so late and starting so early that it was just easier for him to crawl under his desk and go to sleep rather than go home. Right, and this was the culture that I was told, this is normal. You want to get out of college, right out of college, you can start making $70,000, $80,000 a year. Full benefits, give it two years, you'll be making six figures. It's going to be great. This is what you want to do. But you have to sign your life away to do it. But I remember in prayer, while I was thinking about graduation and what I wanted to do, that God had showed me, Justin, you're going to start a family early. You're going to get married young. You're going to have kids young. And so you cannot go into finance. I had just was about to graduate with a degree after four years of schooling in finance. But God showed me, if you want to be present as a husband, if you want to be present as a father, then you need to change your career. So I was like, okay, what do you want me to do? I started a business because quality of life became more important than the amount of money that I made. Right when all of my friends were making their six figures after two years and I was married and broke with 20000 a year. <laughs> but I can tell you I love my wife and my wife loved me. And now I'm having twins. There you go. The home had to become my biggest priority in my life. And I knew that my career had to take a second seat to my home. That I wanted to make sure I was with my kids every morning before I went to work. That I got home every day, my wife and my kids know, Judah knows, at 5.30, if daddy is not home, something is terribly wrong. Because I am home at 5.30 every day because my kids go to sleep at 7.15. So I have about two-hour window with them to hang out with them and be with them. And if I'm working from my home office at 5.30, that door opens and comes in the parade. Daddy's done with work. It's time you're over. <laughs> On Saturdays, I make sure emails don't get answered. My phone doesn't get answered. If you text me on Saturday, I'm sorry. Usually, I just don't answer you. Why? 
Because the home is the priority. And I know that this is the time I need to spend with my family. But there's the thing. Part of any good discipleship program is correction and discipline. And let me tell you, God deals with us this way. And if you want, you can go home and read Hebrews 13 and see how God deals with us as adults in discipline and correction. It's an incredible passage. It shows you the love of God through hard, loving correction. But Proverbs has a lot to say when it comes to our children and correction and discipline. Let me tell you something about today. Culturally, we are not allowed to talk about discipline. We're not allowed to talk about spanking. I remember when I, when I first had Judah, um, and I, I was in church and on a Sunday, and I told him he couldn't do something. And someone came up to me and was like, Justin, you really shouldn't tell him no like that. It's not good. You shouldn't tell him no. You should find another way of saying that. I'm just like, man, that's why we got so many pansies nowadays. <laughs> they grew up their whole life. No one ever said no to them. And now they're in a job and somebody said no to them for the first time and they go home and cry. And let me tell you, this, our culture has insulated so that we have a, a world where our kids, and let me tell you where this comes from. It comes from the idea that we are born inherently good. And if we are born inherently good, then really all we have to do to our children is coax out their inherent goodness. And we don't want to add any negativity to them like a no or a spanking. But really, Scripture teaches a very different thing about how we are born. That we are not born inherently good, but we are born inherently evil. And if we are born inherently evil, then it is the parent's job to root out that evilness from a child. In chapter in Proverbs chapter 22 verse 15 it says, "Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him." See, if you've raised the kid, you know this, kids come out selfish. They come out and it's all about them. Man, I'm telling you, as a, as a, when I first had Judah, that was a rude awakening for me because I never was with another human being that was so sinful. <laughs> but yet I couldn't get mad at them for their sinfulness. I was like, you are being so selfish right now. But I can't even explain. I can't have a dialogue. I can't confront you on the matter. They need their parents to guide them into selflessness. Kids are about self-preservation and they lie to preserve themselves. No one teaches a kid how to lie. They know that, man, I want to get away with this. I want this. It, what I want is more important than how I make others feel. And it's our job to show them that it is more harmful to lie than it is to face consequences with truth. They don't know how to control their anger as they get older, so they start to hit, they start to push. And they need us to show them the God of peace and forgiveness. As they get older and they're awakened to their desires of lust and their hormones, they need us to show them the God who offers self-control and holiness as a better way of living life. 
You know, as we began to see some of these things manifest into our, both of our kids, we saw an incredible turnaround when we started to discipline them because they realized, they start to realize, man, there's consequences for the things that I do, that it's actually better for me to be honest. It's actually better for me to be selfless. It's actually better for me to be kind. And that's what discipline does. Listen, the truth of the matter is some children need it more than others. Me, I got spanked almost every single day growing up. I got the, I got the spoon, the cooking spoon, that big wooden spoon. I got the belt. You know, I just hated hearing the unbuckle. <laughs> Pulling it out, putting it together, and getting it. But I, as an adult, I remember, I know, I thank God every single day for every single one of those spankings. Heather was a different story. She can count on one hand, probably two times if she was ever spanked. Y'all know she's a lot more kind than me. <laughs> but see, here's the thing. My parents, they never did it out of anger. They never did it too much. And whenever they did need to do it, they would pray with me, they would hug me after, and they would kiss me, and that they would tell me that they love me. I remember my dad would always tell me this, and I was just thinking, man, you are so full of crap every time he would say this. He would say, I do this because I love you. And you love me, you leave me alone. See, a lot of times people will read these scriptures and they think, oh man, as soon as I get home, if my kid annoys me, I'm just going to beat the tar out of them. That is not what scripture is talking about. In fact, Proverbs goes against the disciplinarian, the one who gets enjoyment from it or uses it as a release, that anger is not a fruit of the spirit. But this is the truth about it. Proverbs 13, 24 says this, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. See, discipline is true love because it is trying to root out the folly that will later on in life bring on death. These are the things, the selfishness, the anger, the lying, the cheating, the stealing, the things that all the things that I did that my parents were rooting out of my heart with discipline, they loved me enough to do this because they knew if I grew up as an adult thinking that these things were okay, that I could get away with it, that they were leading me on a path to death. In chapter 23, verse, verse 14, it says, if you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. That is another translation for hell. Literally, it can mean the difference between the pathway to hell and to heaven in our children. She doesn't like this. She's like, stop talking about this, Pastor. <laughs> I love it. In chapter 29, verse 15, it says this, The rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. When we correct our kids, when we teach them the realities of the darkness of the world and the reality of the darkness of their own heart and how to navigate them as 
peaceful, loving, forgiving, self-controlled, Christ-following Christians, what we are doing is we are giving them wisdom that will lead them to life. One day, they're going to go off on their own. They may be really equipped for the world. They may be really equipped for the wiles of the enemy, of Satan. They may have a higher chance to survive. Or they may be easy pickings. It says that Satan walks around seeking whom he may devour. He is looking for the ones that are easy for him to devour. We have an opportunity with our children to train them and equip them in such a way that they have the tools that they need when they grow up so that they are not easy to devour. Listen, the truth is this. You can do your best and your kid can still walk away from the faith. Ultimately, their own salvation is their responsibility. It is not yours. But what you can do as a parent is you can equip them the best that you can so that when the time comes, when the when the wiles of the enemy come, when the things of this world try to consume their heart, they know, man, I, I, I have a memory of dealing with this. I have a memory of, of God's faithfulness. I have a memory of who Christ is in this. What we do as parents, if our kids walk away as adults, we pray for them. They're in God's hands. We pray diligently for them. Every day we go to God and say, God, bring salvation Remind them the things of their youth. Remind them the things that I taught them. Remind them the, the scripture that we would read together. Remind them of the prayers, of the times in church, of their experiences with you. But as a church, what we have to do is we have to commit to raising our children in the way of the Lord. And let me tell you something that is 100% facts. Kids know when it's real and when it's not. If you are not engulfed in your love for Christ and follow him as Lord, your kids will sniff that out in a second. They live with you. They know you probably better than you would ever imagine that they know you. They know the things that you really love. They know the things that you really hate. And they will be able to see, does my mom, does my dad, do they really love Jesus? Do they really follow him? Do they really do this thing that they want me to do? So my call to the parents is first and foremost be engulfed in your love for Christ and follow him as Lord. So that you can teach your kids to do the same thing. To be in love with him, to deeply have desire to see his holiness and his lordship rule over their lives. But our call to action today is this. What I, I want a solid call to action for the parents. That if you are a parent here, that you commit today that I am going to do the hard work of discipling my kids, of putting in the time, of putting in the effort, of reprioritizing my life, changing, maybe I need to change some goals around, maybe I need to spend some time differently, give up of some of my own time, my unwinding time, so that I can train and teach my kids. 
But I want to ask us today, parents, will you commit to discipling your kids? Will you commit to doing the hard work of intentionally giving up your time and energy of training and teaching them? Will you do that? Will you realize the priority of the home? That the time to start is not tomorrow, it's not next year, it's not a, a, a good time that you think is another time, but it is literally today. Can we all stand?